8.04, even amid this outbreak and its many struggles, these unintended climate benefits are very clear. And the reasons also, whilst we could study them for months or years to come, are also quite obvious when you have a mass shutdown of various industries, travel restrictions, social distancing, more people staying at home, etc. It means less coal consumption, or at least less coal burning, um, but cars more limited on the roads in various parts of the world. Uh, And the list goes on. What does that mean for our climate action goals, though? It could place us in a a fairly false, comfortable position for a while. Professor John Erickson, an ecological economist at the University of Vermont's Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources, joins us on the line. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. So we mentioned briefly earlier in the show how uh, China has recorded major falls in nitrogen dioxide, but there are various different measures of of air pollution. We often talk about PM 2.5 and PM 10, and normally in Korea in the spring, they are starting to spike around this time, but it's been beautifully clear recently. Um, but your focus has been very much on China. Is that because it is just a, a strong indicator of various pollutants? Well, I think the world's focus is on China. China is the world's largest carbon polluter, accounting for nearly 30% of the global total. In fact, together with the United States, China and the U.S. account for 45% of all carbon dioxide emissions on the planet. Um, So what we're seeing right now is that in China, coal consumption is down, steel production is down, oil refining is down, air travel is down. And altogether, estimates are that China's carbon emissions have dropped at least 25% in in this last month. How much um, has individual monitoring of air quality, like the the, uh, PM 2.5 or PM 10 or the gases that I mentioned, like where are you seeing some of the nuanced differences there? Or is it just an improvement across the board? It is improvement across the board, but uh, some of the monitoring that's being done with satellite photos points, for example, to nitrogen dioxide concentrations, which uh, have, have dropped precipitously between January and February, uh, at least a 37% decrease uh, from satellite photos. In fact, the difference in Wuhan between this time last year is like night and day. Um, Wuhan is the ninth most populous city in China. It's the largest city in central China. And you can just see it the, the, the comparison of satellite photos is uh, really quite extraordinary. Things we know in the back of our minds that, that this is uh, a silver lining on a, on a crisis and that when that crisis is over, we are likely to see a, a surge again. And that's actually, I believe, a pattern you've reported in recessions in the past. You, you see a slide in emissions and then a surge uh, after that. Can you tell us more about that pattern and what we need to be ready for? Yeah, that's, re- that's correct. Every, um, every economic slowdown, in fact, every economic recession, particularly global recessions, result in a dip in carbon emissions. If you look back at the 1970s oil crises, the 1980s U.S. savings and loan crisis, the collapse of the former Soviet Union, the more recent Asian financial crisis and the most recent global financial crisis that resulted in the global, in the Great Recession, they all tell the same story of uh, declining economic growth leads to declining greenhouse gas emissions. Um, most recently, the global economic recession of 2008-2009 saw about a 
5% decrease in global emissions. But as you said, the rebound was quite extraordinary as governments uh, went to work on stimulating the global economy. And by 2010, we saw a 5.9% growth in greenhouse gas emissions. And even though there may be a, a big difference between one of those past recessions and what's happening now, given the COVID-19 situation and, and how unprecedented this has been for so many different aspects of life, you can easily imagine the stimulus response being quite similar uh, once this outbreak comes under control. Uh, But is there also another side of that? Is there an opportunity with public consciousness being where it is right now and with us seeing the benefits of lower pollution to say, look, let's harness this moment for, for change? Is that overly optimistic, do you think? Uh. I hope not. Um, you know, the question right now will be to stimulate the economy uh, for what and for whom. Um, the, the, stim- the stimulus that happened out of the Great Recession, at least in the United States, resulted in the most unequal recovery in history. So we have a chance now to um, recover, but perhaps onto a dramatically different path. Um, of course, right now, or at this moment, the conversation is about flattening the COVID-19 curve. But my hope is that with a similar sense of global emergency, in fact, in fact, maybe learning from this experience, the world's governments can pivot to flattening what's called the Keeling curve. This is the daily record of atmospheric CO2 at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii that's been measuring this, this gradual uptick of, of atmospheric CO2 since 1958. Um, and in fact, today is the is the day 26 years ago that the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was entered into force. And in 26 years, we've seen very little progress on slowing that rise in CO2 concentrations. They've increased from three about 360 parts per million in 1994 to about 414 parts per million today. Um, in other words, we're about 15% above what atmospheric scientists had first said was, was the safe level to maintain climate stability. So there's no time like the present to uh, take this similar sense of global emergency and apply it to climate change. This outbreak has been filled with ironies. One of them, though, is you look at like Greta Thunberg and her school strike for climate change um, or against climate change, and, and then you think what this virus has been able to achieve beyond that even it's forced schools into suspension around the world it has targeted largely older groups of people and left children and and teenagers largely unscathed especially even when infected looking at the milder symptoms that they've suffered and uh, and just generally it, it seems to have been I'm not suggesting the virus has this kind of consciousness, but it seems to have been a message to the world, you know, th- give the children a chance, basically, now. I mean, like, well, it is, it is do you way- pick up on that irony? Yeah, it is, it is, it is perhaps ironic. Uh, it is indeed a, a wake-up call. Um, in fact, um, you know, most of the world's population lives in a daily crisis, right? Lives in a crisis of where, where their next meal comes from lives in constant health crisis. Most of the world's population does not have health care. So in a sense, um, this virus is waking up the, the, the rich countries, the Western world, if you will, to say, hey, 
this is where most of the current generation is, and this is where we're headed for our future generations. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a wake-up call for both uh, global pandemics, which of course are related to climate change, and uh, a, a wake-up call to actually act on the political words. It's time to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Yeah, let's develop that point a little further as well. So if we don't walk the walk, then we may well see the return of global warming with a vengeance, uh, the return of all the indicators that lead to global warming, I should say more accurately, uh, the, the pollutants that we've been talking about, uh, and, and so on. And how would that then put us back in this vicious cycle? How does it lead to pandemics rather than other factors like overpopulation? Yeah, I mean, climate change is already compounding the threat of communicable diseases. Um, for example, a hotter and wetter climate will favor cold-blooded insects, such as mosquitoes, extending breeding seasons and contributing disease vectors to con- disease vectors for malaria and dengue. Malaria already kills upwards of 438,000 people per year, and the dengue virus infects 96 million people each year with over 90,000 deaths. So epidemiologists are predicting that with hotter and wetter climates, uh, this is changing disease ecology as we know it. Um, my own work, for example, in East Africa, where we investigated the compounding effects of land use change, water shortage, and climate change on the emergence of what are called zoonotic disease, which by all measures it looks like COVID-19 is another zoonotic disease, the disease that passes between animals and humans. Mm. Um, we know that, uh, you know, Humans are changing both landscapes, are changing demands on water, are changing the very climate, which are influencing these disease vectors between people, between people and livestock, between people and livestock and wild animals. But it, it again, it's a situation of a certain degree of irony there, because the kind of uh, outbreaks that we've seen, like influenza in the past, and and this coronavirus emerging in the winter, uh, in, in colder conditions, uh, even though it has affected parts of the world with warmer climates, generally the, the worst effects seem to have been in, in colder conditions. The, the, the future outbreaks that we might see more of would be, like you say, perhaps mosquito-borne or other types that flourish in warmer conditions. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, again, because this virus is affecting uh, wealthy nations, rich nations, rich people who can afford to fly... It is waking up that group of people to the problems that the global South lives with on a day-to-day-to-day basis. So this is a wake-up call, but it's kind of a wake-up to what the rest of the world sees as a daily crisis. Uh, Understood. But but here we are, again, coming back to the overall arching theme of this interview, um, in a false situation. We're seeing some of the benefits to the world right now, environmentally, of, of shutting down industries and, and reducing our, our footprint. Uh, but at a certain point, if the lockdowns continue too long, for example, across Europe and in the United States, what then happens with your economics hat on? That could bring about far more serious problems even beyond the environment, couldn't it? It, it sure could. Um, I, I mean, I, in, in an ideal scenario, we would have the time to plan for the transition to a different kind of economy. We'd have the time to prepare 
the resources for these kinds of global emergencies. We've been sounding these alarm bells for decades around climate change. Um, this is this is in part why we're seeing things like the Green New Deal uh, conversation bubble up all over the world, mm. uh, both in the U.S. and Europe. And I just recently saw in South Korea the conversation is happening around a Green New Deal. These are proposals about rapidly transforming our economy towards resilience, towards equity. And they're proposals that have at their heart protecting the most vulnerable in our society. Um, so, again, this current pandemic is waking us up to the vulnerabilities of the current economic system and pointing the way towards something where we can create a more climate resilient climate economy in the future. How worried are you, though, that politics will get in the way, that people have this uncanny ability in mass to vote against policies that would help them and and we've seen it repeatedly we've got an election here next month still scheduled and a big election coming up in the u.s later this year well if if i've learned anything in the case of u.s politics it's not even that people don't vote in their interest they just don't vote um here we have massive voter suppression that has resulted in growing inequalities has resulted in concentrated power of the elite has resulted in, and again, the most lopsided recovery since the last last recession. Um, it's not that people don't vote in their interests; it's that they're not they're not actually voting, um, which is which is a major challenge when you put uh, up against these challenges of both pandemics and climate change. Professor Erickson, real good to have you with us on the line today. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Professor John Erickson from the School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Vermont.